Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And if you listen to this podcast regularly, you know we've covered our share of explorers and adventure travelers, people like Freya Stark, who traveled into uncharted territory with seemingly little regard for their own safety and bring back useful info to enlighten those of us who are less ambitious, to say the least. Yeah, I haven't made any desert tracks lately. You are in particular very fond of explorer stories, though. I do really love explorer stories. And uh, it's interesting sometimes when you when you do subjects who are kind of in the in the same vein to see what they have in common with each other. And Freya Stark, you just mentioned her. She actually has a lot in common with the subject of today's podcast, who's Gertrude Bell, especially in terms of where they traveled specifically, which was the Middle East. And you might find a few other little parallels throughout their stories, too. However, unlike Stark, Bell's involvement in the areas she explored went far beyond documenting them and publishing works about them. Bell also did some archaeological work in there, but was a mountain climber too. But she's best known for a loftier sort of thing. Working with the British government, she got involved in Middle East politics, pitched in on some spy work, and is largely credited with the founding of modern Iraq. And it's said that at one time she was the most powerful woman in the British Empire. So that really piqued our curiosity, and we wanted to find out how did this well-heeled English gal, otherwise expected to become a proper Victorian lady, get to go pretty much where no lady had gone before and have the sort of influence that none other had had. And so that's what we're going to look into a little bit today. And a lot of the answer seems to lie in how she started out. She was born Gertrude Margaret Lowethan Bell on July 14th, 1868, in a really well-to-do family, according to an article in Smithsonian by Janet Wallach. Her family friends included people like Henry James and John Singer Sargent. Her father, who was named Isaac Lothian Bell, was a prominent industrialist, and as such, he had a lot of important connections. And because of those connections, he was able to get Gertrude into Oxford at a time when not very many young women attended. And she excelled there, and in 1887, she became the first woman to graduate from there with a first in modern history, which was the university's highest honor in modern history. Even at that age, though, she wasn't shy about voicing her opinions. Wallach writes that she shocked professors by challenging their ideas. Maybe because she was so opinionated and outspoken, though, she didn't have a lot of luck in the love department around this time, around the time that she finished school, which made her stand out from other women around her age because most women married around this time. But because of her outspokenness, as we said, because she was sort of snobbish almost about her intelligence, she had a hard time finding suitors. So at age 20, she was sent off to stay with an aunt and uncle in Romania. Her uncle was a British ambassador there. And it was in the hopes that she would find a husband. I guess the Oxford guys just couldn't handle Gertrude, right? So she didn't find any suitors in, in her time in Romania, but she did realize that she just loved travel. And so in 1892, she arranged a visit to Tehran in modern uh, 
de Iran, it was Persia at the time, where her uncle, Frank Lassell, was British minister. And it's there that she got her very first glimpse of the desert. And she just loved what she saw. This reminded me a little bit of Louise Boyd getting her first glimpse of ice. Each each explorer has their own passion, right? right. But According to an article by Carrie Ellis in History Today and a piece about Belle in All Things Considered, in her first letter home, she wrote, quote, Oh, the desert around Tehran, miles and miles of it with nothing, nothing growing, ringed in with bleak, bare mountains, snow-crowned and furrowed with the deep courses of torrents. I never knew what desert was till I came here. It is a very wonderful thing to see. So, I mean, that speaks clearly how enchanted she was by something so different from what she was used to. Right. She was smitten with this area of the world. But while she was in Persia, she also became smitten with something else, a guy, a young British diplomat named Henry Cadogan. According to Wallach's article, Bell described him as, quote, a very thin, agreeable, intelligent, a great tennis player. I like him immensely. Mm. So he apparently liked her, too, and they spent a lot of time together exploring the desert, going on picnics, reading poetry. But there was one problem about their relationship continuing any further, and that was that Henry was very poor. And again, according to Wallach's article, Bell's father refused to let them get married at all. He he didn't think that Cadogan earned enough to support his daughter in the manner in which she'd become a accustomed to. Um, plus, Henry had a gambling habit. And so Belle went home to England to try to convince her father in person that this was the guy for her. But she was not successful. And just a few months after she returned home, she got word from Persia that Cadogan had fallen into an icy river while fishing and had died of pneumonia. And she was just completely heartbroken uh, and devastated to hear about this. So Belle spent the next 10 years or so in England writing, including some writings about her experiences in Persia. And she also traveled around Europe. She traveled to France, Italy, and Germany. And this is also around the time in the late 1890s or so that she started to earn her chops as a climber by climbing unexplored peaks in the Alps. Wallach's article recounts one particularly harrowing experience Belle had in the Alps in which she and her guides were trapped by an avalanche, a thunderstorm, and blinding snow, any one of which would have been enough to deter me. I but know, that, that all sounds bad. They were basically huddled, all roped together, in a crack between some rocks on a peak for more than a day. And Bell later said that she thought, quote, it was on the cards, we should not get down alive. But she kept her cool, and they did make it down. And that's really something she was known for, too, as a climber. Uh, later, one of her guides said that out of all the amateur climbers that he'd worked with, including uh, males as well as females, no one could rival Belle in terms of, quote, coolness, bravery, and judgment. And I mean, that seems like something that serves her well later in her career, too, not just on the mountain. Yeah, and I just love to picture her doing this. Huddling in between the the crack in the rocks, braving out the storm. Right, and even what, you know, what she might have looked like at the time, because there weren't any dedicated climbing clothes for women at this time, at least when she started out climbing, and Belle was doing her climbing in a skirt. I mean, she wasn't wearing, like, decked out in REI gear or whatever that we would expect today, obviously. No polar tech. (laughs) 
nothing like that. Yeah, a skirt would make things considerably more difficult, it would seem. But uh, it didn't it didn't stop her. I mean, none of that really stopped her. And she decided that she wanted to start uh, racking up some climbing accomplishments, too, like some real goals. She wanted to be the first person to climb all the peaks of the Engelhörner range in the Swiss Alps and actually accomplish that goal in 1901. One of the mountains, Gertrude Spitze, was named after her. But even with all the adventures that Europe had to offer, Gertrude still longed for the desert. She was drawn in particular to the mystery of the Arabian desert, and so around the turn of the century, she moved to Jerusalem to study Arabic and to gather as much information as she could about the tribes that were roaming around the desert. With her new know-how, she didn't waste any time in exploring. She rode from Jerusalem to Jericho to Damascus. And according to Ellis's article, one of her most notable early adventures involved dressing like a Bedouin man and riding about 100 miles northeast of Jerusalem in search of the Druze, which was a secretive militant Muslim sect that was at odds with the ruling Ottoman Turks. And surprisingly... She got along quite well with the Druze when she found them. Ellis writes that the territory the Druze were living in was at the time uncharted by Westerners, but Bell managed to evade the Turkish authorities. This part reminds me of Freya Stark a little bit. A lot. Um, and finally get to the Jebel Druze mountains, where she just charmed the Druze king entirely. They ate together, they talked together, and since um, Bell had become fluent in Arabic, this was something she could really, really do with ease. They even became friends, and the king apparently asked someone later, referring to her, have you seen a queen traveling? So <laughs> she made an impression. Yeah, and it was apparently a good question to ask because Belle did spend the next few years traveling around the Middle East, studying Rome, the Roman and Byzantine ruins there, and also studying the Druze and various Bedouin tribes more in depth. She learned a lot about the Arabs and about the Ottoman Empire on her journeys, and she took copious notes while she was doing that. A lot of her observations made it into her 1907 book, The Desert and the Sown. And it also seems that she impressed more than just the Druze king. According to Wallach, the Arabs pronounced Belle, quote, a daughter of the desert and made her a, quote, honorary man. But in addition to racking up these great titles and making all these friends, she was really learning her future trade, too. We mentioned her studying the Roman and Byzantine ruins, which is significant because it's during these years that Belle started getting more and more involved in archaeology. She studied under the French archaeologist Solomon Reinick in the early 1900s. And in March of 1907, she went to Turkey to work with William Ramsey on some excavations there. And the work they did actually resulted in a joint publication, a 1909 book called A Thousand and One Churches, which, according to Ellis, really solidified Bell's standing as a, quote, serious archaeologist. So she's not a lady explorer anymore. She's somebody who's out there doing real work with well-respected archaeologists. And becoming well-respected in her own right. Mm -hmm. In January of 1909, Gertrude set out for Mesopotamia, which included what is today Iraq, as well as Syria, Turkey, and Iran. Her goal was to map out uncharted territory. So Wallach outlines a few of the things that Bell took along for the ride, and I just have to mention 
this we in its entirety. We love explorers. Yeah, it, it says so much about the time. <laughs> it really does, and, and so much about what's important to the person. I think so. So we'll just quote this from from Wallach's work. She says. Her trunks packed with pistols, her saddlebags crammed with books. She was accompanied by an entourage of male servants, baggage animals, horses, and a plethora of equipment. Cameras, tents, a folding bed and a canvas bath, mosquito netting, rugs, provisions for a month, quinine, camphor, cigarettes, an entire set of Wedgwood china, crystal and silver for proper dining. And this reminded me so much of the Champagne Safari. That was before you were a co-host, but before it, my time, it was a similar packing list, bringing things that, um, again, I mean, she may not have had the REI gear for her climbing and and special high tech fabric for desert wear, but she wasn't dining with like tin plates either, was she? No, she wasn't. So with all of this equipment, with all of these luxuries prepared, she set off on a journey that lasted about seven months. And the land she traveled across was so brutally dry that her party often had to stop and seek refuge with local tribes. And as their guests, sometimes they would eat things that maybe they weren't expecting to see on their Wedgwood China, um, really bitter coffee out of the the. Uh, cups, if they had Wedgwood cups with them too, <laughs> sheep's eyes on their plates, um, things that were probably welcome if they were looking for refuge in the, in the desert, but also real traveler's stuff. In March, she came across an amazing and as yet undocumented ruin, a 6th century stoned wood castle known to Arabs as Ukadir. I hope I'm saying that correctly. I'm not sure. Bell spent hours and hours painstakingly photographing, measuring, and sketching these ruins. She even got down on the ground in her petticoat to make sure that she was taking very precise measurements. And she was taking this so seriously because since the ruins hadn't been documented before, if she were the one to come out with this discovery and have it so documented and write about it first, it would be this huge big win for her, something that would establish her archaeological reputation beyond a shadow of a doubt. She didn't exactly rush off quite yet, though, with her findings. She went on to Babylon and wrote about Babylon, saying it was, quote, the most extraordinary place. I've seldom felt the ancient world come so close. From there, she went on to Baghdad, which was about 500 miles from her starting point, just to give you a sense of of how far she roamed on on this trip. There she met the Nakib, which was the city's one of the most important Islamic figures in the city, who rarely spoke to women. And again, just sort of like the, the king of the Druze, she really charmed this guy. He ended up inviting her to meet his family. So from Baghdad, she went on to Constantinople, and that's where she got some really bad news. She found that a French archaeologist had scooped her on the Akadir find, and she was upset about this. But because she had at least spent so much time documenting it in the form of drawings, her name was at least going to be associated with the discovery. The French archaeologist had written about it first, but she had all of this information, all these pictures to really back up the find. Just 18 months later, she went back to the desert again. She wanted to visit a friend, David Hogarth, who was working on an excavation in the ancient city of Carchemish for the British Museum. When she got there, though, Hogarth had left and his two assistants, two young British archaeologists, were waiting for her instead. 
They were Campbell Thompson and a 23-year-old graduate student named Thomas Edward Lawrence. And that name may sound kind of familiar to you, and that's because it's the same Lawrence that would later be known as Lawrence of Arabia. And these guys were eager to impress Bell with the work they'd done. It, it started out rocky for them, though, according to Ellis. Bell took a look at their excavations and immediately called their methods, quote, prehistoric. <laughs> she then proceeded to tell them how a dig should be done. But they eventually won her over with their conversation in which they showed off substantial local knowledge, something that always appealed to Bell, and knowledge of architecture, among other things. She ended up calling Lawrence, quote, an interesting boy. He is going to make a traveler. Very on point, Gertrude. Just an interesting side note, because uh, this group, they sort of seem like an odd couple, don't they, or or an odd group of three. But apparently the locals who didn't know what to think about a woman traveling alone like Gertrude Bell often did and and knowing that Lawrence was a bachelor originally thought that Bell had arrived to be his bride even though she was at this point something like twice his age uh, it just seemed like the most logical solution to to explain this party sure why not <laughs> also interesting to note about this independent lady traveling alone she'd been active in the anti-suffrage movement back home in the early 1900s she She was actually the honorary secretary of the Women's Anti-Suffrage League, according to Ellis. And apparently she believed that she was the equal of any man, but didn't think the same was true of all women. Anyway, we just thought that was worth a mention for those who look up to her as a feminist role model. It's not totally black and white here. You can't expect her to to be the perfect role model, I guess. Right. As with any historical figure or figure of any kind. But as we'll learn in the second part of this podcast, there were others who also thought that Belle was a singular kind of lady and allowed her to be part of what was perhaps the ultimate all-boys club, right? The military. At a time when it really mattered, too, because in the next part of this podcast, we're about to go to war, World War One, and talk about Belle's political influence in the Middle East, the stuff that she's probably best known for. There is a little bit of romance in there, too, though, because we haven't talked about Gertrude's second notable love affair yet. And we'll also talk a bit about how she made a lasting impression on Iraqi culture. So all sorts of things to come in our second part of this Gertrude Bell story. So a few weeks ago, we did an episode on the mystery writer Agatha Christie, and we heard from a lot of Agatha fans out there. We also heard from a lot of Doctor Who fans, and this is not the first time we have inadvertently covered a subject, also covered on Doctor Who. Neither of us watched the show, so we're not up to date with the plot lines, but I think at this point, we really need to start tuning in to Blina. Well, I I think we're already so in sync. It might be interesting if we just don't start watching it and see if we (laughs) continue along this path. Yeah, but we have a a letter here from our listener, Anna, from Charlottesville, Virginia. And she says, when I checked the podcast and saw the mysterious disappearance of Agatha Christie, I got very excited because I love Doctor Who. Why? Because in one episode, the doctor meets Agatha and they solve a murder together. And then she loses her memory. The details about the actual situation are a bit off, but the overarching theme is the same. I suggest you watch this because, even though it is mostly wrong, 
And also the nature of the show has some really strange characters. It is a really interesting look at what could have happened to Agatha. The episode is The Unicorn and the Wasp, starring David Tennant as the Doctor and Catherine Tate as Donna Noble. So again, another another recommendation from a listener. I think there was we got a lot of mail around the Madame de Pompadour episode, which I wonder now that we have the Chevalier d'Eon coming out too, people will be writing again about Doctor Who and Madame de Pompadour. They probably will. Uh, but this one sounded sounded fun. I'd like to see a take on what Agatha does during her her mysterious disappearance. Um, yeah, I'm intrigued now that I've read this. Better than than just the spa explanation, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So if you guys ever have something fun like that to share, we're always interested. We are at historypodcast at discovery.com. We're also on Twitter. That's where a lot of people share their television show connections. We're at Missed in History. And we are on Facebook. Um, and, of course, if you just have suggestions, too, non-television related. We're always happy to get those as well. And if you want to learn a little bit more about some of the topics that we talked about in part one of this episode, you can look up an article called How Archaeology Works on our website. And it is written by the great Sarah Dowdy herself. I'm blushing to find her. <laughs> and it's a great article, so you should check it out. You can look that up by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 